landing. I feel, as always, a great need to pray and seek God's face for his help to understand and proclaim this passage from Revelation. Let's pray together one more time. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ and by the power of you, the Holy Spirit, we come. Asking for the miracle that you would create faith in our hearts by the preaching of Christ. With the disciples, we say, Lord, increase our faith. All saving faith comes from you. We bring none of it to you. If we have it, we've been gifted by you to have it, and now we ask for more. For those who might be listening by live stream or even in this room who've never known saving faith, would you give it for the very first time? For the broken and the wounded, would you heal? For the confused and the wandering, would you give Christ as the clear north star, the polar star? For the angry, would you let your word be a soft answer that turns away wrath? For the weary, would you let your word be a hope and a help not to lose heart? For the guilty, would you remind them that the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive sins is infinitely effective for all who call upon you? For those harassed by demons, would you be their fierce protector? For those unsettled and between two minds, would you be their shalom and their peace? Give us such a vision of the glory that is to come, the sweet and horrific glory that is to come, that everything in our lives this day takes on new weight and importance and glory now. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for revelation. We thank you for the verses that we'll focus on now, and we thank you for the way that you will apply them to us with great benefit for our souls and well-being for our church and advancement for the cause of Christ on the earth and perfect preparation for the day of the trumpet blast and when fire comes from heaven onto earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The overarching danger, the highest looming threat in the book of Revelation is not the devil. It's not hell. It's not unbelievers and their persecutions. And it's certainly not silly modern American inventions like luck or chance. The overarching looming threat and the greatest danger in the book of Revelation is the wrath of of the Lamb. Revelation 6, 16 through 17, calling to the rocks and mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, say the unbelievers, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the scariest thing in the book of Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. We know from the warning of Revelation 6 that when all the six seals are opened, there will be such a arrival of the Lamb and His wrath on the earth that everybody who has thought it 
ridiculous and silly and foolish not to trust in Jesus Christ, if, if they thought it was the dumbest thing in the world to say, oh, you think that if I had a seed of faith that I could tell that mountain to be moved, that it would move? You're ridiculous. You're silly. I don't believe that. That's ridiculous. All the people who thought that was ridiculous will be talking to the mountains and saying, please fall on me. Quick, fall on me so I don't have to have the wrath of the Lamb strike me. Suicidal is the rejection of Jesus Christ. Suicidal. The Lamb is terrifying because His wrath is absolutely right and just. His wrath is infinite and powerful. His wrath for those who have chosen to receive it and refused to bow before Him now in receiving His mercy and salvation is an infinite wrath. It's an unquenchable fire. Hell doesn't have an ending. It's all the more painful to think about the wrath of the Lamb in our lives because he has already paid the price for us not to endure the wrath of the Lamb. He is a scarred Lamb. A Lamb is his identity because he was sacrificed on the cross at Calvary with the scarring of his wrists and his ankles and the spear in his side and the wounds in his head from the crown of thorns and the lashes upon his back, but far worst of all, the estrangement and rejection and dereliction of God the Father from his beloved God the Son. All that that might make Christ the perfect sacrifice for you and for me and for anyone on the face of the earth who turns from their wickedness and sin and finds in Jesus Christ the perfect forgiveness and mercy, the adoption as sons, the love of God. All the mercy and love from the Lamb makes his wrath all the more painful to endure. It stuns us, stuns us to think, what will his face look like when he comes back to bring his wrath on the earth? What will be his face, the shape, the look, the eyes? What will be his face toward me or toward you? How will he look at you and how will you look back at him? He is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Root of Jesse, he is sovereign now over all things. To paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square nanometer in all reality over which the reigning Christ does not cry mine. All of world history tumbles toward the day when the reigning Christ will say, enough, the final and seventh seal will be opened and silence will grip heaven for about a half an hour. All clear-minded and true-hearted persons of heaven will, like a massive bomb detonating, have the very breath they breathe drawn out of their lungs and sucked into the vortex of this explosion of wrath. Sound itself will not be heard for about a half hour until the final release of its destructive power. That's why this passage is such a mercy to us. If you're sitting here right now and you're looking at, especially chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 in front of you, it is such a stunning mercy to you because this passage is the word of God with the power of God to prepare you to be ready for its prophecy. 
This passage has more help for us in teaching us how to have right hearts before the Lord so that we can say, Lord, I know exactly what it's going to be like when you come. I know that your wrath is the scariest thing in the Bible, so it's the scariest thing in all reality, and I want it to come, so I say, come Lord Jesus. My parents taught me to pray, come Lord Jesus, when I was a little tiny kid, before I even knew what I was talking about. Now I'm thinking, I'm asking for the wrath of the Lamb to come. I didn't know that. Probably good that I didn't. When we're asking for Jesus to come, we're asking for him not to bring a flood on the earth to destroy the earth for its sin. We're asking him to bring fire. You'll see that here in Revelation 8, 1-5. I draw out three observations from these verses, and here they are. The Lamb executes perfect judgment on the world, so be silent. Number two, the prayers made in the Lamb's name bring the judgment, so pray. Number three, the judgment of God cleanses the earth by fire, so give God glory. You know that in this trek through Revelation that we've been on, chapters one through three are the hermeneutical or interpretive format that sends a canopy or a cover over the whole book. John, the author, has seen a vision by the Holy Spirit while he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And in the beginning of the vision, he gives prophetic words of encouragement from Christ himself to the angels of these seven churches, which represent us all. And those seven churches are addressed in chapters 1 through 3. Then in chapters 4 and 5, to encourage those churches to remain faithful, we have this glorious vision of worship where the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, is introduced and he's found to be the only one worthy to open the scroll of God's decrees for the entire world and all of history. In chapter 6, the seals Seven of them are unsealed from the scroll one at a time by the only one whose hand and life is holy to do it, namely Christ himself. And he's unfolding the seals and all manner of hardships and horsemen and punishments are released upon the earth for the injustice and the sin and the godlessness that wreaks havoc across the face of the globe. Then toward the end of chapter 6, as we saw at the beginning, unbelieving, fearful, hateful, suicidal persons in desperation call for the mountains to fall on them rather than to face the wrath of the Lamb. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? They answer, and that's the question being answered now in chapters 7, 8, and following. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? An interlude now before the seventh seal is opened. In chapter 8, verse 1, this interlude in chapter 7 we've been in for some time shows us that it's actually the church, the bride of Christ, militant on earth, triumphant in heaven. That's who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb. So this passage is preparation to you by inviting you to say, are you trusting in Christ as your forgiveness, your cleansing and washing of your robes as white? Are you now trusting in Jesus Christ so that when he does come with his face of wrath and all the fire that's to wreak havoc on the earth as a just judgment, are you ready to say, Lord, help me to stand in the face of all of your fiery wrath, but I trust in you. I believe in you. I am covered in the protective covering of your 
love and forgiveness and your righteousness. Like the three Jewish boys in the fiery furnace. Only the ropes that bind me will be burned and I won't even smell like smoke at the wrath of the Lamb. If you have that confidence, if you can say the greatest thing in all the world for me, Brent Nelson, is to be saved. If you can talk to the people in your life who are most near to you and at a moment of crisis say, you know, it's all all wired up and ready to keep forgiving you. You can keep sinning against me and call me a fool if you want to. I'm ready to keep forgiving you because that's how Jesus treats me. If you can say to your captor, the best you can do is kill me and send me to Jesus faster, so have at it. I've led my wife and daughter and son and his wife to Christ. Take me. You then are the most useful person for the kingdom of God on the earth. You then are the most useful person to bring the mercy and the love and the kindness and the ministry of the gospel to all the ends of the earth. You're the person who hell fears. You're the person who the kingdom of darkness cannot stand against. You're the person in whom the power of God dwells so that you may go out for the sake of his name and conquer kingdoms for his glory. I want you to see first the Lamb executes perfect judgment on the world. So be silent. Look at verses 1 and 2. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. I take it that those are the seven angels referred to back in Revelation 1 through 3 that are ministering to the churches, and they're given a trumpet. A trumpet blast is meant to prepare for war and for battle. I take it that when they blast that trumpet, as we will see in the rest of the chapters 8 through 11, that the unfolding of God's holy war against sin on the earth will come at the blast of the trumpets. And so this is a foretaste. Get ready for what the seal of the, the lamb as he opens the seventh one means is that there is going to be a sevenfold trumpet blast and it's going to bring about God's justice against sin on the earth. So all, un, all believers, be encouraged. Justice is coming. Injustice will be obliterated. Everything will be set to right. Hang in there. Keep on praying. Be encouraged. Say, come Lord Jesus, knowing full well it's going to bring scorched earth. Unbelievers, Flee to the salvation that yet is available. Flee to the face of Christ who's going to look at you with a smile for a while longer before it's too late and his face turns. This is just judgment. Romans 1, 18 through 20 makes it plain that God is stunningly patient. In fact, one of the things that causes some people to be atheists, I've talked to them for this reason and read them and heard, heard conversations where they've said this. One of the things that causes people to be atheists is they say, if God is so good and if God is so holy, then why is this world so ugly and f- filled with wickedness and sin? He's either sleeping, he's either in, in, impotent, he has no ability to end it, Or he just doesn't care and he's not a good God. Or fourth, their happy answer, he doesn't exist. Or he is stunningly patient, mercifully patient, long-suffering with emphasis on the long. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You can go to an atheist and say, you really have an ugly newborn baby. And they'll smack you. Nobody wants their newborn baby to be called ugly. But you can't explain from atheist terms why you love a newborn baby. You can only explain it from God-centered terms. This is a person made in the image of God, beautifully and wonderfully made in his or her mother's womb. Praise the Lord for a newborn baby. A gift from God and a beautiful demonstration of his image on humanity. What can be known about God is plain to them. It's funny to watch an atheist use all kinds of God's principles to argue for their atheism. It's like a fish saying, I'm sure there's no such thing as water. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Infants, those mentally incapable of discerning the creative power of God, they have an excuse. Yes, they do. They're going to be scooped up into the presence of God by his stunning fatherly creative mercy. But those with the ability to look out at the world and say, I didn't make this. This is not the result of a series of trillions of collisions. There's a God up there. He's powerful and he's eternal and he's worthy of all praise and thanksgiving and honor and I should be telling the truth about him, but I will not. That rebellion is blameworthy to the uttermost. An infinitely worthy God, having rebellion committed against him, makes that rebellion infinitely blameworthy. And an infinitely blameworthy rebellion deserves an infinitely long punishment. When the seal is opened by Christ the Lamb, there's silence for about half an hour. Why the silence? It signifies, on the one hand, for sure, the astonishment and the awe and the trembling wonder of all the residents of heaven, all the angels, all the persons gathered around the throne, the 24 elders, all the beings in heaven, as it were, are holding their breath while the opening of the seventh seal sucks their breath out of them and nobody breathes a word. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone. Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. Wickedness bows down before some silent piece of wood and gold and silver and it worships the stupid piece of gold and silver and wood that it made with its own hands. But it's silent. It's like a stone. It can't say anything. And God says, when my final judgment comes, I'm going to suck the air out of all reality. So all you people are silent. You can't say a thing. When it's time to worship me at the height of my Glorious justice. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Indeed, he has. 
as we shall see. Silence befits sacrifice. No one should be chattering while blood is being spilled. Because the Lamb of God, who is opening the seals, has been sacrificed, and by his blood all the saints have been washed by, with their garments white, then therefore when the Lamb opens the final seal and all of God's wrath is to be poured out on those who have spurned that precious blood sacrifice, only silence is fitting. There's moments, is there not, when you're in the presence of the living God privately at home, I experienced it early this morning, There are moments when you're gathered with the people of God, are there not, when you're worshiping the Lord in the power and glory of his might and silence comes over you? Have you ever experienced that? Where you stand and and you, you quiver and tremble before the Lord with such affection and such joy, but you almost don't have any words to say. No language can suffice. No, No body posture is low enough. No mindset is expansive enough to absorb all that the glory of the Lord is revealing to you. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. An interpreter I lean on and read from, Phil Riken, was quoting a British preacher from a hundred years ago nearly 100 years ago, a man named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones was preaching on this passage, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And, and Lloyd-Jones, while he's preaching on that passage, said this wonderful sentence, A Christian is someone whose mouth has been shut. Which by this he means, a Christian is somebody who says, I am no longer making any kind of blathering excuses to God. I have confessed my sin. He has received it. He and I are on solid, peaceful terms. Praise his name. My mouth is shut and I wish to stand in the highest form of worship in silence before him. God's wrath is so glorious, it makes the clear-minded and the loving Silent, full of awe, holy fear, astonishment, which literally means I've been made to be a stone. I'm astonished. Indeed, a stone. Yet more than trembling silence of awe, God is highlighting in this silence that he's hearing the prayers of the saints. It's it's almost like we saw in Revelation 5, do you remember where the, the 24 elders had golden harps? And they had 24, each one had one and total of 24 golden censers, which are the prayers of the saints. That's in Revelation chapter 5. Here, it's almost like they're silently moving into position. Almost like they're making a line and and they're ready to hand their golden bowl, which is full of liquid prayer, which is the coolest thing in the world. Liquid prayer, they're going to hand these golden bowls to the angel and the angel is, as it were, going to pour these golden censers, bowls full of liquid prayer, into one big golden vat in heaven. And that golden vat sits on a fire and, and, and the fire heats that golden vat so that the fragrant aroma of the incense of the prayers is waffling before God and God is smelling the incense of the prayers of his people, and he's delighting in it. 
Oh, I love to smell the incense of my people's prayers over the altar that's in heaven. There's no sacrifices for sin in heaven. There's no altar in heaven because there's any addition to the sacrifice of Christ. That's blasphemy. The reason the altar is is in heaven is that the bowl can sit on it and the fires can burn and that the fragrant aroma of the prayers can go up before God and delight and please him forever. One commentator that I came across in my study said, the saints appear insignificant to men at large. That's an understatement. Christians seem like the most dismissible, insignificant people in our culture than ever before. But in the sight of God, they matter, says this writer. Even great cosmic cataclysms, the fire of God on the earth, are held back on their account, and the praise of the angels give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. That's an echo of a Jewish tradition which says the reason why there is a half hour in in the synagogue before offerings of incense are offered up is so that people may pray. So there's a half hour of silence and that's exactly what chapter 8 verse 1 is alluding to. This idea that God is about to declare a mighty cataclysmic cosmic answer to sin. The sin that has refused the sin-bearing nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and so there's a fitting half hour before. Let your heart be silent before the Lord privately and in worship. Cherish the silence. Let not the enemy or past regrets or fears, false and wicked thoughts, shame and anguish and anxiety, depression or any such thing Interrupt your perfect worship of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and was given much incense by those elders to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So my point is this, the prayers of God's people bring God's just judgment. So pray. The prayers of God's people bring God's just judgment, so pray. What this is teaching is that on this altar, behind the curtain, incense is going up before God. It's just like when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was ministering in Luke 1. He went behind the curtain and he offered incense and it was on behalf of the prayers of the people. Here the censer is a large gold bowl holding incense and and like a fire pan there are shovels that are adding fuel to the fire. So it's almost like the... Prayers of the saints are the, are the liquid that's, that's heated in this censer and the fragrant aroma of it goes up before God like incense. And that also, it's another image helpful to think about is the idea that our prayers are like the billows that are keeping the fire hot on the throne altar of heaven. In Revelation 6, the martyrs who had been sacrificed by murderers for their faith in Christ cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were praying and they were saying, How long, O Lord? And their prayer is being added into this golden vat, this censer, and it's wafting before God. And now God is about to answer the prayer. So stop and think about this. In every language, 
throughout all history, in every place, every prayer offered by believers, the reference here is to saints, these are believers, is added and not one drop is wasted into this vat. All the prayers of the saints, every Our Father who art in heaven, every God, I can't pray to you right now. Every Lord, please forgive me. Every Lord, would you provide for our needs as a person, as a couple, as a family. Every longing, every ache, Lord, I don't even know where to start. Lord, please save me. Lord, please show me how to make this decision. Show me, Lord, what to do. Every prayer prayed is combined together and it's poured into this vat. Not one is ignored. Not one is not answered. Not one is dismissed or missed. It's all and perfectly collected into this vat. And then you can say with Psalm 141, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The martyr's prayer was, how long, O Lord? And your prayer, added with every other prayer in every other language throughout all time, is the increasing of the fire's hotness on the altar in heaven, and it is the filling up of this vat to the point that God says, enough. And I am going to take the prayers of the people, and I am going to add them with fire And I'm going to instruct an angel to take from my altar, as it were, a shovel of that fire and throw it down onto the earth. God loves the prayers of his people. God loves to hear and receive the prayers of his people. And he says the prayers of his people he will use as the instrument of bringing about the end of the world. There's no way in my mind that prayer could be deemed more important than what we're seeing right in front of us here in Revelation chapter 8. You might say, wow, kind of crazy, never thought of that, or that's a really big thought, that's stretching my brain, that's kind of how I think about it. But I responded, maybe you're responding, I don't think I've ever prayed for anybody to be burned. I mean, I don't think I've ever prayed for anybody to be killed. I don't think I've ever prayed any prayers that anybody should uh, have their life become a misery and die in hell eternity, in eternity. Maybe you say that. If you have said that, you're holier than I am. But there are passages in the Bible that do teach us to pray against God's enemies. There are many psalms, for instance, that call us to pray against, against God's enemies. Add that right up against the teaching of Jesus that we're to pray for God to bless our enemies. How does that fit together? Here's my understanding. I think until our enemies are dead, we're supposed to pray, even to their last moment, that they would, in fact, repent, return, and become a brother and cease to be our enemy and God's enemy. I also believe that God's justice and his imprecatory psalms, as they are called, are psalms that are rightly fitting the very nature of God against sin and against those whose hearts are hardened ultimately by God and themselves to the very end, such as with Pharaoh or other examples in Scripture. And we don't know who they are. So I find myself, even for my enemies, praying that, God, you would take them from the earth in mercy and in swift removal of their guilt and sin, or give them repentance to cease from their evil. I trust the Lord to know what he will do best. 
Know this, that as you're praying, the power of your prayers are being collected in heaven by God with not one drop missing. The power of your prayer is to increase the heat, increase the smell and the fragrant aroma before God, to increase the fire that goes out over all the earth. You might feel like your voice and your tweeting on Twitter and your talking on TikTok and all the other things you might do might try to be your little click influence in the world. Think about your prayer before God is having influence in the world, in the entire reality of creation, in the very plans of God. He holds back until all the prayers of the saints are added in at the right hour. So he comes to us, as it were, and he says, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Gather prayer gatherings. Join the prayer team at church. Think, think of new ways to increase prayer. Let's, let's chart a prayer walk downtown Duluth. Let's, let's end at the uh, city hall or, or some other location. Let's travel down to the state capitol and let's gather ourselves to pray there. Let's see if we can have a hearing with some of our politicians and take a lunchtime with them and bring them a nice lunch and say, how can we pray for you over lunch? Let's increase prayer on the earth because even when we're praying blessing, God is collecting it and adding it to this grand heavenly vat, the censer that he finds so pleasant and the one which he will pour out in judgment upon the earth at the appointed hour. I wonder if you feel sort of a drawing of the Holy Spirit to increase your prayer involvement here at the landing or in your own home or as a person before God. The earth will be cleansed by fire, so give glory to God. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. Sometimes the word censer in Greek means a shovel. And it was, the, it was the way they moved hot incense from one altar to another or around within the altar. That's probably the picture here. It's like an angel at God's appointment taking a massive uh, shovel of hot burning incense that's now flaming. And it's, it's as it were gasoline from the prayers of the people are causing it to burn hot and on fire. And he casts it down upon the earth. Now stop for a second and think for a moment what that means. It means that the Lord is making unbelief on the earth, sin and wickedness on the earth, rejection of Jesus Christ, high-handed rebellion against Jesus Christ on the earth, a holy sacrifice before him. You see that? Fire heated and fueled by the prayers of the saints, before God that he finds pleasant as an aroma, is cast down by the angel on the unbelief of the earth. Now the whole earth, wherever that fire reaches, is a sacrifice to God. Not for their salvation, but for their destruction. This is justice from God. Preaching the gospel, all prayer, dedicating our children, baptisms, the Lord's Supper, singing songs, writing books, building churches, 
None of that makes any sense unless this judgment is absolutely and stunningly real. The only reason we exist as a church and as believers and as proclaimers of the gospel, believers of God's word, filled with his Holy Spirit, seeking to engage in biblically obedient ministry, the only reason to do that is because there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. And it's this real. Look at the end of verse 5. Fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Those same words show up two more times in Revelation because Revelation goes through this same sevenfold un, un, uh, unfurling of the plan of God. It's, it's the scroll unfolding all over again. It will be trumpets and then it will be bowls and it all climaxes in the same thing. At that hour there's a great earthquake, says Revelation 11:13, and a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Gave glory to the God of heaven. The climax of this passage heard in our ears now when there's very few fires on the earth and very few signs of God's wrath on the earth comparatively to this time is that we would be the people who come before the Lord and we would be silent before him and we would be in prayer before him and we would be the ones who give him glory at the slightest sign of his displeasure against sin. We would think about the events that are happening in the climate or we'd think about events that are happening in other nations, wars and famines and striving, viruses, pandemics and difficulties of every sort and kind and we would step back and we would pray for God to alleviate those and be merciful to those. Oh Lord, bring end to the wars and bring the gospel to the hurting. Provide food for the hungry. Provide truth where there are lies. Provide healing where there's been abuse and violation and sin, and yet we would also be those people who say, Lord, we can see in the horrors that you're permitting on the earth preparation for a final judgment that is just right and good, and we will not wait to give you glory then. We give you glory now. I've always remembered that one of my wife's favorite psalms is Psalm 18. It's David. Eight centuries before John had his vision. 29 centuries before us right now. And untold days before these events will happen. But as I read just this, a brief portion of Psalm 18, notice how much it sounds like David, in the power of the Spirit, is prophesying Revelation chapter 8. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from the nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick 
clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke before his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Then the angel, Revelation 22 says, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, for they will see his face. Let's pray.